Our sermon today is Exodus 15, it's verses 1 through 10. This is the Song of Moses, the Song at the Sea, part 1. All right, um, starting in uh, Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You have sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, as I said, I have not personally done this because I didn't realize the significance of this until I was halfway through the uh, uh, first part one of this uh, particular uh, Song of Moses. But I want you to just do two things for me today. First, this is a very complicated sermon because it introduces numerous words into the Bible that have never been introduced before. All right. So all I want you to do is listen and enjoy. I don't want you to get, oh, I have to remember this and that. Don't, don't do that. This is to be enjoyed. Unlike any other sermon where I want you to get something doctrinally practical out of it, this is something that is marvelous just in itself. And the second thing is, I just want you to pay attention to how many times new words are introduced into the Bible during this song, this week and next week. Probably not since the very early pages of Genesis have so many new words been introduced into the Bible. All right, normally I read a psalm before I uh, get into the uh, sermon and then I do the sermon. But as a treat for you today, we have a person from Israel who is going to read you not just the first 10 verses, but the entire Song of Moses in Hebrew, okay? And then we'll get started. So, Sergio, please come on up, grab a seat. Delight our ears. Um, Charlie, okay. So, as Yashir Moshe ubnei Israel et asherah azot l'adonai, v'yomar l'amor, Ashira l'adonai ki gao gaa sus v'rachvo rama bayam. Azi v'zimrat ya, v'yi li l'yishoa, ze eli v'enoho, eli avi v'romamneho. Adonai ish milchama, adonai shemo, markevot paro v'chaylo yara bayam. U'mivchar shalishav tav'u bayam suf, tehomot yechesiamu, yardu b'mutzolot kemo aven. Yemincha adonai nadri b'koach, Yeminha Adonai Terats Oyev Ubarov Gionecha Taros Kamecha Tishlacha Necha Yachlemu Kekash Ubaruach Afecha Nermu Maim Nitzvu Kemoned Nozlim Kafute Homod Belev Yam Amaroyev Erdof Asig Echalel Shalal Timlemu Nafshi Arik Harbi Torishimu Yadai Nashafta Baruchacha Kasmu Yam Tsaleluke Ofera Bemaim Adirim מי כמוך בעולם, בעילים אדוני, מי כמוך נהדר בקודש, נורא תהולת אוסף אלה. נתית ימינך, תבלמו ארץ. נחית בחסדך, עם זו גאלת. נהלת בעוזך אל נווי קודשך. שמעו עמים, ירגזון, חיל אחז ישבי פלשת. אז נבהלו אלופי אדום, אלי מואב יחזמו רעד. נמגו כל יושבי כנען. תיפול עליהם אימתה ופחד, בגודל זרועך ידמו כאבן, עד יעבור עמך אדוני, עד יעבור עם זו קנית. תבעמו ותתעמו בהר נחלתך, מכון לשבטך פעלת אדוני, מקודש אדוני כוננו ידיך. אדוני ימלוך לעולם ועד. כי בא סוס פרעה ברחבו ובפרשיו בים, וישב אדוני עליהם את מי הים, ובני ישראל הלכו ביבשה בתוך הים. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much. I generally have a pretty good idea of how many verses I'm going to use for any sermon. What I do is I look over the passage that I'm going to type and I find a logical place to stop. And then I start preparing those verses to delight your ears with treasures from the Word of God. And so on the 13th of July, which is the day I started typing this sermon, I chose Exodus 15 verses 1 through 19. And that happens to be exactly two months ago today. Mom had come by that morning to pick someone up and take him to the airport. And so I told her that today would be a very tough sermon to type. And she blew me off knowing that it would go fine. But I told her, Mom, this is the song of Moses. It's in poem form, and I am not sure what I'm going to get out of this. I started organizing it into sections, and I chose four sections for the entire song of Moses. That's very rare, but four sections would mean three poems. You know, I like to do a poem before I go to the next section one before each subsection. And I thought that'll take up a whole lot of space and it'll make a full-length sermon. But by the time I finished verse number one, I had to cut off verses 11 through 19, cut the poem in completely in half, and I had to cut it from four sections down to two. The Song of Moses has taken on an entirely new meaning to me because of what is tucked away in it. And I hope that you'll enjoy this first half of it as much as I enjoyed studying it. And be advised, this sermon is not 22 or 23 pages long as normal. It is 25. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 13. It's verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David said that his heart would rejoice in the Lord's salvation. Moses says something similar in his song today. I would trust that by the time that we finish, you will rejoice in him as well. Just hearing the words of the Bible come alive as they do in this song is enough to make me really want to jump out of my seat and shout. It is great stuff from a wonderful God to the objects of his affection. All of this is to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again and may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the Lord is his name. It's verses one through five. Verse one, then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, although not the first poetry which is recorded in the Bible, it is the first song recorded here. In fact, the verb shear or sing is used for the first time in scripture in these words. And not only is this the first song in the Bible, it is also by some hundreds of years the very first song recorded in all of human history. The structure of it is going to be followed very closely many times in scripture after this. And though I'm no specialist in these things, it apparently bears a very close resemblance to the Egyptian religious poetry with which Moses and probably no other Israelite of the time would have been familiar with from his early training. Because of this, there is absolutely no reason to assume that anyone other than Moses is the true author of this song. And yet, he humbly doesn't take credit for it. Instead, he simply says that he and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord. The song is written entirely in hemi-stitches, which means half-lines, which is the normal form of Hebrew poetry. The poem actually divides in a few ways. The first is that it goes from verses 1 through 12. The words there are retrospective. They look back on the deliverance of the Israelites by the Lord. From verses 13 through 18, they are prospective, meaning that they look forward to the future results of their deliverance. And yet, even though future, they are written in a past tense, mission accomplished style. But the first retrospective section logically divides into three subsections from verses 1 through 5, then verses 6 through 10, and then verses 11 through 12. Each of these divisions begins with a note of acknowledgement to the Lord, and each ends with a note of judgment on the Lord's enemies. But there's more to consider than just this song before us. Even at this early point of chapter 15, and without having entered into the song itself, it needs to be noted that this song is later comparable to the song of the redeemed, which is found at the end of the tribulation period. Thus, this is a complete confirmation of the many previous sermons, which equated Pharaoh first with the devil and later as the Antichrist of the end times, Egypt with the world, and the Lord Jehovah 
with the Lord Jesus. Therefore, all three redemptive scenarios follow logically. Israel from Egypt, the church from the world, and tribulation saints from the tribulation period. This Song of Moses is in Exodus 15, and the last Song of Moses is found in Revelation 15. It's a nice pattern having been established between the two 15s. There in Revelation 15, we read these words. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. The words of this Revelation song follow the same pattern as that of the Exodus song. They open with an acknowledgement to the Lord of his greatness, and they end with a note that the judgments of the Lord have been manifest. Further, in these two songs, we can see that the mark of the Passover is to be equated with the refusal to take the mark of the beast. Standing by the Red Sea is to be equated by standing by the Sea of Glass. And the timbrels of the women in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, are to be equated with the harps of God in Revelation 15, verse 2. Throughout the Bible, we are progressively being shown what will come about in the future by looking at what has occurred in the past. And in that progressive revelation is the truth that God has slowly and methodically revealed Jesus Christ as Lord, who is to be exalted above all else. If we fail to see this, or if we simply refuse to acknowledge it, it is to our own detriment. The songs of the Bible are recorded to show us the very heart of God and how we are to honor him, to exalt him, and to glorify him. This being the first, we should attend to it carefully and completely, savoring each line as a cherished possession which will lead us to the very throne of God and of the Lamb. And so let us look into this first such expression of the magnificence of God's redemptive workings with a sense of delight and joy. Now I want you to know as we go through these verses from now on out, I am going to be saying them in Hebrew. And I want all of you after this to acknowledge that my Hebrew is far superior to Sergius. Actually, I'm going to blow it a lot. I'm self-taught in Hebrew, okay? Verse 1 continues, I will sing to the Lord. Ashira Yehovah. This begins the first subsection which recounts the work of the Lord. It is individual and it is personal rather than as a group. I will sing. It is the true calling of each individual within the whole to acknowledge the Lord and to sing to him. Some of us, like me, should probably sing quietly as to not hurt the ears of the Lord or our fellow man, but let us sing. And the reason why is verse 1 continuing, for he has triumphed gloriously. Ki ga'o ga'ah. Literally, he is gloriously glorious, or he is exceedingly exalted. This word ga'ah is used only seven times in the entire Bible, and the first four of them are found in this chapter. The root of the word means to rise. For emphasis, the word is repeated here twice, ga'o ga'ah. It is first in the finite form and then in the infinitive absolute. The idea here is that the Lord has risen up like a wave over his enemies. Therefore, I can't see any reason not to think of these words as symbolizing rising, he has risen. It would then make a perfect picture of and a parallel to exactly what Jesus Christ did when he triumphed over his foes at the resurrection. Verse 1 continues, the horse and its rider, sus ve the horse and its rider implies the chariots of the Egyptians. They followed the Israelites in, but they were destroyed. Verse 1 going on. He is thrown into the sea. This is a contrast to the rising like a wave from just a moment ago. He rose like a wave. They were thrown into the sea. It is reflective of the words of Paul, which say in Colossians chapter 2, When you were dead in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having forgiven all us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of death 
consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. Azi vezimrat Yah. My strength and my song is Yah. There is a lot in these few words to pull out. Instead of the full name Yehovah, this has the contracted form Yah. It is the first time that this poetic form is used in the Bible, and it was used to maintain the rhythm of the words. But this name, Yah, is not just a nickname or a reason for a poetic matching of sounds. In itself, it is a full name. We know this because it is used in conjunction with the full name Yehovah by Isaiah on two separate instances. One is found in Isaiah chapter 12, and it is almost a mirror of the words that we now see right here in Exodus. Here are his words in Isaiah 12 too. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Adam Clark notes that the name Yah indicates he who is absolutely, simply, and independently. It is the very basis of the name I am, and it is what Jesus was certainly alluding to in John chapter 8 when he said these words, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Despite this being the first use of the name Yah as a name, a compound form of it was used earlier in Genesis 22 verse 2 in the name Moriah, or the bitterness of Yah. It is also the form of his wonderful name that we use every single time that we say the word hallelujah or praise Yah. Moses acknowledges here that it is Yah who is Azi Vizimrat, my strength and my song. And if he is our strength and our song, then that will naturally lead him to being something else. Verse 2 continues, and he has become my salvation. Vehi li liyeshua. And he has been to me my salvation. The Lord is our strength, our song, and our salvation. Nothing could be more wonderful to consider. We could pull up a thousand verses on this one concept. And as you read the Bible, take time to ponder them as your eyes alight upon them. One comes to mind right now, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. When we are weak, he is our strength. When we are downtrodden, he becomes the song on our lips to restore our souls. When we are overjoyed with his goodness, he is our song of praise and thanks. And when we need a savior, he is there to save. This is now the third of 77 times in the Bible that the word Yeshua is used. The first was in Genesis 49 during Jacob's blessing of his sons. After blessing Dan and before blessing Gad, he cried out, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. Jacob at that time anticipated Yeshua. It was next used just before the parting of the waters when Moses said, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Moses promised Yeshua. Salvation would come and it would come from the Lord. And now in this verse, it says that Yeshua had come. There is a logical progression of the introduction of this word, Yeshua, to show us the coming of Jesus Christ. He is anticipated, he is promised, and he has come. It is a picture of the incarnation. In essence, the words say, my strength and my song is Yah, and he has become my Jesus. It is an ancient reference to what the Lord would do in human history. He would step out of his eternal realm and he would become the man, Yeshua, the Lord Jesus. Along with Isaiah 12 too, these words are also quoted one more time in Psalm 118 verse 14. We are being given time and time again hidden references to what God would do in the sending of his son to redeem man. The Lord is Yah and Yah is Jesus. Such is the wisdom of God to show us these things in advance. Verse 2 continues, He is my God and I will praise him. Ze'eli ve'anvehu. The term my God or Eli is used here for the very first time in scripture. It is a personal touch acknowledging that the Lord is God and not only a God, but my God. And because this is so, ve'anvehu, and I will praise him. This word, nava, is used only two times in the Bible, and it means home. And so some older translations say, I will prepare him a habitation. 
However, the root of the word means beautiful. And so other translations say something like, I will praise him or I will glorify him. This is most probably the correct sense because the poem is constructed of parallel verses. The next portion says, I will exalt him. And so in order to be parallel, the words, I will praise him, are certainly a better choice than I will build him a home. Verse 2 continues, My father's God, and I will exalt him. Elohe avi ve'aromemenhu. My father's God means the God of my ancestors. In other words, it is speaking of the everlasting nature of God who is there before and who is there now. He is the God of his fathers, who they called on, and now it is his honor to call on this same God. This takes us right back to the words of Exodus chapter 3, which says, Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This same God who received the praises of the fathers is the God whom Moses and all of the children of Israel now exalt there on the shore of the Red Sea. There is no gap in the praise of God from generation to generation. When Jesus appeared to his people, his praises continued on in a new group of people who are the sons of Abraham because they possess the faith of Abraham. Paul writes this to us in Galatians chapter 3. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So then those who are of the faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. Yehovah Ishmilchama, the sappy, impotent picture that modern theologians make concerning God is false. From the beginning to the end, God is the one who takes to the battlefront and engages in the battle. It is he who receives the victory as his enemies are destroyed. In the previous chapter, we read these words. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. In seemingly countless times throughout Scripture, the Lord is shown to be a mighty warrior and one who does not shrink from the battle. In Isaiah 42, we read this. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. And in Isaiah 63, there is a description of the Lord that is so striking and so terrible that if its words are properly considered, they would fill the mind with absolute horror at what they picture. There the prophet writes this most vivid description. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I, who speak righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have tread in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all of my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart. And the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help me. And I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own right arm brought salvation for me. And my own fury, it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. And lest we make the same error as many modern church folk do, that this is, oh, that's just the wrathful God of the Old Testament and not the peaceful, loving God of the New. We have to see the fulfillment of Isaiah's words in the book of Revelation. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it, with, with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The terrifying vision of the Lord that Isaiah saw is actually fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
It is he who will stomp out the blood of his enemies, spattering his garments with their blood in the full righteous rage of God who defends his people. Surely the words Yehovah Ishmilchama are true. Yehovah is a man of war. Verse 3 continues, the Lord is his name, Yehovah Shemo. It is actually unfortunate that the name Yehovah is replaced with the Lord in most translations of this poem. We probably use this term, the Lord, to show the obvious connection between the two testaments of Yehovah, the Lord in the Old Testament, and Jesus, the Lord in the New. However, we lose some of the sense of poetry when we substitute the name with the title. Yehovah is a proper noun, not a title. And so the words Yehovah Shemo means Yehovah is his name. He is the one who appeared to Moses at the burning bush and explained to him his very nature by the giving of his name. In our sermon in Exodus 3 verse 14, we went through many, many long pages of explanation concerning this divine name. Without going into so much detail, we should recall some of the significance now because Moses is tying the victory of the Lord over his enemies to the one whom he met at the bush. The name Yehovah, which is translated often as L-O-R-D in all capitals, is derived from the word A-A. It means to fall out, to come to pass, to become, or to be. In this, God confirmed that he was to be known to his people by the name Yehovah specifically. This name Yehovah carries just that meaning, being, or he is, or he will cause to be. Abarin notes that to a Hebrew audience, the name Yehovah may have looked very much like he who causes that which is to be. As he is uncaused, then all things that exist were caused by him. He then is the first cause of all things. He's the unmoved mover. He is the giver of existence. In that he is self-existent and that all things come from him, then that means that all things were, are actually encompassed by him. There is no place where we are or where we could be, which is outside of his being. If you get on the Starship Enterprise and you fly to the farthest galaxy, he will be there because he encompasses everything that he created. The name I am or its form Yehovah implies an absolute uniqueness. If he is the giver of existence, then there is none other that gives existence and therefore there is none other like him. The name also implies eternality. He is outside of time because he created time. And therefore, though he interacts with it, it has no effect on him. Rather, it is affected by him. Jehovah is his name, and the promises which he makes will never fail to come to pass. Moses realized this in his words of this song. Jehovah promised to bring Israel out, and Jehovah delivered. Jehovah is his name. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he is cast into the sea. Marchevot paro vechelo yarabeam. The word used here for cast means something like to hurl. It is a verb which is often used to describe the hurling of a javelin or the shooting of an arrow. Such is the nature of the mighty man of war who is described in the previous verse. By his hand, he took them and he cast them to their deaths both chariots and army in one fell swoop. But for intensification of the imagery, Moses continues, verse four going on, his chosen captains are also drowned in the Red Sea. Not only were the lesser warriors destroyed, but even the chosen captains. The word mivchar means the choicest. It is the same which was used in Genesis 23, verse 6, when Abraham went to look for a tomb for his beloved wife, Sarah. At that time, the Hittites said this, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest, that word there, of our burial places. None of us will withhold from you his burial place that you may bury your dead. The word now shows that those who were personally selected by Pharaoh himself as the finest of all of the armies were not spared. They, along with the lowest of foot soldiers, all perished. If you've been paying attention to these four verses, you may have seen the amplification of the scope of the victory. It started out with the general words, horse and rider, in verse 1. From that, verse 4 broke it down first into his chariots, then his army, and then his chosen captains. 
It seems that Moses was purposely raising the intensity of the words as if he were stepping up to a new level with each description. The word translated as drowned here is tabah. It is the first of 10 uses of it in the Bible. It specifically means to sink. It is the same word which is next used in 1 Samuel chapter 17 when the rock from David's sling sunk into the forehead of Goliath. Down went the choice captains of Egypt. A watery grave was their final lot. With such a massive scope of destruction, particularly the choicest leaders having been removed, guess what Moses could have done? He could have just actually turned around and probably subdued all of Egypt. But the sea behind them was closed and the Lord had no intention of leading them around it and back into that miserable place once again. Instead, he wanted them to share in his glory in another way. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 says that he instructed them to never return that way again. Instead, Israel was never to return to Egypt. We are never to return to the world of sin. Jesus Christ has utterly defeated the foe who stands against us. And so why would we go and trust that guy again or ally with him? Instead, we are to take a new direction and always follow the Lord where he goes. One final note on this verse is that the destruction here occurred in the Red Sea or Yam Suf. In an earlier sermon, I explained the meaning of Suf as a noun, which means reeds, but as a verb, it means end. The verb is translated elsewhere as to be swept away. Thus, there may be somewhat of a play of words here. The armies of Pharaoh sunk in the sea which consumes. They were swept away. And for all we know, the name Yam Suf could have come from this account being given to them after it occurred. We have no idea. Verse 5, the depths have covered them. Tehomot yakas yumu. The word for depths is a word often used in a poetic sense, as if an unfathomable abyss. One of the most memorable uses of this word in all of Scripture is found in the 42nd Psalm with these beautiful words. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The tense of the words in Hebrew are written as if the floods were covering these guys in Moses' mind as the poem was being written. The floods covering them. Verse 5 continues, They sank to the bottom like a stone. Yaredu vimsolot kemo aben. They went down into the abyss like a stone. The word bottom or abyss is different from the depths. Taken together, the two lines read, The floods covering them, they went down into the abyss like a stone. It is a great mental parallel to what we read about the Antichrist of the future. When I read this, think of what we just read. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. The Lord judged Pharaoh and his armies and the Lord will judge the Antichrist and his. The finality of the words is given to show the terrible end of these wicked foes of the Lord and of his people. This ends the first subdivision of the poem with the words of judgment upon Pharaoh and his host. It is at this time in the song that the women would probably pick up the refrain which is found recorded at the end of the song in verse 21. And they'd play their timbrels and say, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. When the refrain was finished, Moses and the men would continue on with the next stanza. Great and glorious is the Lord our God. He has cast the horse and its rider into the sea. He is my strength and my song in this life as I trod and he has even become salvation to me. He is my God, and I will praise him forever. My father's God is he, the one who ever lives. He is a man of war, from the battle retreating never. Jehovah is his name, and upon us his favor he gives. He is the same one who then stepped out of the eternal realm, uniting with flesh and living as a man to redeem us. He is our mighty God, ever at the ship's helm, there to bring us to our heavenly shore. He is Jesus. Our second thought today is the right hand of the Lord. It's verses 6 through 10. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Yeminecha Yehovah nadari bakhoach. This is the second anthropomorphism which is used to describe the Lord. 
The first was in verse 3 when he was called a man of war. Now an attribute of a man is given to him, the right hand. It is the first time that this phrase is used in connection with the Lord in the entire Bible, but it is going to fill scripture from here on out, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets. The New Testament will continue on with this analogy as well. Also, the word glorious, which in Hebrew is adar, is used for the first of only three times in the Bible. Some translations use the word majestic to translate this word, showing the superlative nature of the right hand of the Lord. The right hand of the Lord is the place of power, of favor, of divine blessing, and of divine judgment. It is expressive of the finest qualities of tender care or the harshness of the outpouring of wrath. How the right hand is used in relation to the subject is what determines what the outcome for the subject will be. It is a lesson from the Bible. We should consider being on the good side of the Lord before his hand is raised. In the case of his enemies, the consequences of being in his disfavor are realized with the following words. Verse 6 continuing, Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Yeminecha Yehovah tiratz oyev. The word translated as dashed here is ra'atz. It means to afflict, and it's only used twice in the whole Bible. The other time is in Judges chapter 10, where it says this, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year they harassed, that word there, and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Knowing the human heart and seeing it daily in the treatment of people by, for example, the Muslims of today, we can know for sure that dashed is a good word. The Israelites were more than harassed. They were crushed. In like manner, the Egyptians were literally crushed by the right hand of the Lord. Translators vary on what verbs to use in this verse. Some will use the past tense and they'll say, has become glorious, has dashed the enemy. Some put it in the present tense and they say, is glorious, dashes the enemy, and so on. The English Standard Version skips the verb in the first part and makes the second verb present tense. In so doing, I think they give the proper sense of this verse. Here's how they translate it. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The verb is in the present, but it is one of continuance. His hand wasn't just glorious in power in the past. It is simply glorious in power. And Moses wasn't just looking back on what happened, but to what the Lord is capable of doing at all times. He shatters the enemy as the enemy comes against him. Past, present, future, always. Verse 7, And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. Uverov geoncha taros kamecha. Your excellence is another word used for the first time in the Bible, gaon, and it is immediately followed up in the Hebrew with another first-time word, haras, or overthrown. It is a completely different word than that used in chapter 14, where it says the armies of Pharaoh were overthrown. This word gives the idea of picking something up and shattering it to pieces, like a pot of clay being smashed on the ground. Moses is holding absolutely nothing back as time and time again he introduces new or superlative words to describe the Lord and to convey the magnificence of what his eyes had beheld. The song of Moses is merely the beginning of such majestic poetry about the Lord, but it is an amazing start to it. The Lord, in all of his greatness and majesty, overthrows, overthrows those who rise against him. Like the previous verse, the verbs indicate something ongoing. This is not merely a description of what occurred, but it is an acknowledgement of what the Lord can do in connection with his work at all times in human history. Verse 7 continues, You sent forth your wrath, it consumed them like stubble. Teshelah haronecha yochelemo kakash. Again, a new word is introduced into the Bible. Haron, or wrath. It literally says, your burning. It is as if a fire went out to consume them. Hence the words, it consumed them like stubble. Stubble in this verse is the same word, kash, that was first introduced into the Bible in Exodus chapter 5 when the people went out looking for stubble to make bricks. That which was useless was used in the brick-making process, and those who are useless to the Lord are burnt up like stubble in the eternal fires of judgment. 
Verse 8. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. Uverulach apecha ne'ermu mayim. The imagery here is absolutely astonishing. It is as if the Lord put his face down to the water and blew with his nostrils, causing a mighty wind to drive the waters where he wished. With the mighty east wind, the waters were gathered and a highway was made. The word for gathered here is aram. It's used only here in the entire Bible. It comes from a primitive root meaning to pile up or to gather together. Moses is using exceptional words to describe this most exceptional of events. The fact that he uses a word such as this shows that it was not a mere ebb tide, but a truly miraculous event which they beheld. And the imagery continues. Verse 8 going on, the flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. Nitsevu kemoned nozalim kafehu tehomot belev yam. Again, three words are used here for the first time in the Bible. Ned or heap, natsal meaning to flow, and kafa meaning to congeal, have all been introduced into the poem and into scripture. Under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Moses' words reflect the magnificence of the event. The waters were brought to a state of animation as if they stood in fear. They stood up as if in attention before facing a drill sergeant, and poetically they are said to congeal to a hardened state as if blasted by a frozen polar wind. The elements reacted to the prompting of the Lord in order for the people of the Lord to pass through, and surely no bride ever traversed down the hallway of a church with awed eyes gazing upon her as the people of God did as they passed through the admiring waters of the Red Sea. There went Israel, marching towards their marriage with the Lord. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. Amar oyev erdof asig ahalek shalal. In what is a departure from the form of poetry thus far expressed, Moses enters directly into the thoughts of the enemy. With these words, which are both extremely beautiful and yet terrifying in their original intent, he makes abrupt almost gasping utterances, leaving off the word and in between each. It is as if the intent of mind in the Egyptians was set on the goal, leaving no time to even coherently put the thoughts together. They were eager to regain the plunder of which they had been plundered. They were eager to take the flocks which would replace those lost in the plagues. They were eager to steal away the women, to kill the men, and to enslave the children. I will pursue... I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. It is the most magnificent of poetry because we can enter into the thoughts and the feelings which had enticed otherwise rational men to go between walls of water which were as unnatural as a glowing green sky or cats that can fly. In complete disregard to the God who had proven himself greater than any of their gods, they have become consumed with self. I will, I will I will. Verse 9 continues, My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. The maniacal thoughts of the enemy continue. My, I, my, my desire, the lusts of my angry and coveting heart will be turned against them. I will draw my sword from its place of rest and I will loose it upon the Hebrews. It will leave its sheath at my side and find a new place of rest in their hearts. Those who have destroyed my firstborn will be paid double and more. They shall be utterly destroyed by the power of my hand and the raging flow of blood through my veins. The terrifying thoughts made them ready to act as they drew nearer with each step through the long tunnel of water. But those angry, lusting thoughts became their own undoing. The Lord was ready to act and the end drew near. Anger would be replaced with horror. Verse 10, our final verse of the day. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. The first wind was one of divine favor upon Israel. It parted the waters and it brought them out of bondage. The second wind was of divine wrath and it closed the mountainous passage, destroying the afflictor of his people. They were covered in the waters and started their journey to the bottom of the sea. 
The word sink here is tzalal. This is its only use in the Bible. It comes from a root meaning to tumble down or to settle by a waving motion. However, two other identical words used elsewhere mean to grow dark and to tingle. And so it could be that the intent here is that they darkened the waters as they sank and all that was left was a gurgling sound. The word oferet or lead is used for the first time in the Bible here. To me, it's striking that instead of saying again that they sank like a stone, lead came to Moses' mind. He is celebrating on the shore of the Red Sea with stones as far as the eye could see and yet he says lead instead of stone. Two things come to mind because of this. First, Moses was aware of the dense nature of lead. The word shows intent and it shows high intelligence concerning its nature. Secondly, there must be another connection for the Lord to so inspire him to use this word. The word for lead, oferet, comes from another word, afar, which means dust, due to its dusty color. It is the word used at the creation of man when God took the dust of the earth and created him by blowing the breath of life into his nostrils. Now Moses saw these men of dust created by God sinking as if lead, there to return to the dust from which they came. The breath of God gave, and the breath of God has taken away. It is the most beautiful of symbolism that God is absolutely sovereign. Even a word such as lead instead of stone shows the immense wisdom in the construction of the greater magnificent themes which are found in the Bible. I mean, what a book! And one last word in today's verses is used for the very first time. It is used to describe the waters, adarim. Adir means majestic, but here it is in the plural form, adarim, majestics. It is the mighty proof of the Creator's glory, which is furnished by the waves as they rush majestically along. Like noble warriors having won a great battle, the waves just simply roll along proudly, having prevailed over the foes of the people of God. Every word has been carefully selected by this great man of God while under the inspiration of the Spirit to delight the senses and to show forth the majesty and the splendor of the Lord as he worked his mighty miracle for his redeemed people. With the ending of this second stanza, Miriam and the women of Israel would have again picked up their timbrels and sang, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. What a marvelous beginning to this most magnificent of songs. What treasure and beauty has been hidden in these words for us to read and to delight in. And if this song was written for the redemption of mere temporary physical life, how much more should we how much more should we endeavor to sing to the Lord for the redemption of our eternal spiritual souls? Can we really sit and withhold our joy, our praise, and our exaltation from the Lord knowing that we have crossed over a much greater chasm than Israel passed through in the waters of the Red Sea? Knowing that a far greater foe has been defeated for us than a mere army of flesh? And knowing that even now, right now, we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ because of what he has done for us? Sing to the Lord. Surely he has triumphed gloriously. The devil is defeated, eternal life is granted, and we are the redeemed of the Lord. And with the mere possibility that you are listening today and you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, please let me tell you how you can, even right now. The Bible tells us that there is a problem, and it's sin. Sin is what infects us. Sin is what keeps us from the presence of God because he is infinite. He is absolutely perfect he is pure and he is holy and he is righteous and we have sin in our life it doesn't matter if we've done anything wrong which we have but even if we hadn't we inherited sin from our first father adam which is the purpose of the bible is to show us how we got into the mess we we're in and how to get out of it and each one of these pictures is showing us exactly that we inherited adam's sin and we are separated eternally from our creator because of it but he did something so wonderful, so marvelous, so glorious. He stepped out of the eternal realm and he united with human flesh in the womb of a virgin. And so Adam's sin did not transmit to him because he has no father. Sin transfers through the father. So he's born of a woman, he's fully man, but he's born of God, so he's fully God. And now he can potentially live the life that we never could. He's born under the law, 
All he has to do is fulfill the law. And the gospel records are there showing us that that is exactly what he did. He fulfilled the law that we cannot fulfill. And then he gave his life up in exchange for our sin. And all he asks from us, all he asks of us is to just simply believe. By faith and by faith alone, we are saved. Abraham looked to the sky. He believed God and he was credited with righteousness by simple faith. And that is the picture that we are given all the way through the Bible is that we just simply need to reach out and say, I cannot save myself. I know I have sin and I need you to save me. That is it. There's nothing else you can add to that because if you do, then you have not understood the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 18. He sent from above. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy. He delivered me from my strong enemy for the from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Think of that. The Lord delights in each person that has faith in him. And so he'll deliver you because of that. The creator that doesn't owe us anything. The only thing he owes us is the lake of fire. He delivered me because he delighted in me. Next week is Exodus 15. It's 11 through 21. I mean, what great verses are in store for you? It's the song of Moses, the song at the sea, part two. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and sing a song of praise to him in the process and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? I have a poem to you today. It's called, I Will Sing to the Lord. Jim preempted me last week by asking, how am I going to make a poem out of a poem? <laughs> well, as I did with all of the blessings of Genesis, I am not going to change a word of the song of the sea, uh, the song of Moses by the sea. I'm just going to simply read that and add in my own poem around it. So here we go. Then Moses and the children of Israel in joyous praying sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen chariots are also drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath that consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. How wonderful to read the marvelous song and to contemplate the greatness of the Lord. May we together for eternal ages sing along and praise Jesus, God's eternal word. Splendid and wondrous things he has done. He has brought us across the great divide. In our Lord, the victory is won, and he has brought us to himself to forevermore reside. We praise you, Lord. Yes, hear the praises from each of us. We exalt you, O God, for our Lord, our Savior, our precious Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, I just am so overwhelmed with the wonder of your word, the precious words which show your magnificence and your glory, and how many Dozens and dozens and maybe hundreds of times have I read this song and never appreciated it for the majesty that it shows us. Help us never to do that with your word, but to always look at this word, holding it in our hands, trembling that we are reading a letter from you, from the creator of the universe to the very heart of man. Open our hearts to you. Open our hearts and restore us to you. Lead us to the rock, which is far higher than we are, that we can stand upon that rock and we can see your glorious face reflected in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you for all you've done. I pray for each person who's not here today, which there are several which are perplexing me, and I hope that everything is okay with them, Lord. 
I pray for them and for all the people that have asked for prayers through the uh, internet or through Facebook in the past week. So many people have had prayer requests and I pray for each one of them and for our missionaries as well. Lord, please tend to them, take care of them and help them to understand that they are doing great things by spreading this wonderful word that you've given to us, the salvation of man because of your love for us. And we thank you for the fact that we can worship together here on Rosh Hashanah. Maybe you're coming today, maybe soon. May it be soon, Lord Jesus. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we get the uh, instruction for the Lord's Supper directly from the Bible. We don't add anything into it except the blessing that the Lord himself would have said over these elements. And we do this, as it says right in here, we take the Lord's Supper to remember his death until he comes again. And once again, I want to tell you that it's grace. He died for us before, while we were yet sinners. If you can't think of anything more than the grace that's pictured in that, I, I, I just can't. I can't imagine how people want to set aside that grace and add in things that we do in order to obtain his favor. Well, we can't add, can't add in anything, nothing, to receive the grace of God except simply receive it. So if you've never made that decision today to simply trust Jesus Christ and nothing else, do it. All right? Paul wrote these words, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam HaMotzi Lechem Min HaAretz. And he broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. And he would have blessed us as well. He would have said, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pari HaGafen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ.
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I just, I, I just, I love your word so much, and I'm so amazed at the beauty and the majesty that's just tucked away in there for us to see. And forgive me for my failing tongue and the stutters and the slips that, that hide the majesty of what you have in your word. We're fallen people and we could never attain to rightly praising you as we should. But help us to do so with our voices in song, with our actions towards each other and towards you, with our studying of your word and not becoming tired at doing good for others at all times. Help us to do these things, even though we do them failingly and without perfection. Receive our offering to you, O God. Read, the, uh, read our hearts and know that we have only the best intent to honor you and to serve you. And we thank you for the gift above all gifts, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the cross that he went to for our sins. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for that. And we do so in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.